Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Today, we're going to hear about paddle sports safety and the uh, explosion of interest in paddle sports. You know, I don't think it's just paddle boards either. I think in general, you know, kayaks and canoes, paddle boards for sure, and even rowboats. Let's not forget the rowboat. We've got a special visit to uh, Garnsey's Feral Acres, where he takes in farm animals that are injured or abandoned. This will be our first of a three-part series on Garnsey's Feral Acres. I've got some tips on paddle sports and some reflections on staying safe. Did you know? Hey, Lily. Hi. Hey, I noticed at Costco the other day you were admiring the uh, blow-up paddle boards again. Still eager to be able to walk on water, are you? Yeah, no, the paddle boards are, honestly, it's just an excuse to spend more time out in the water. What about safety on the water? Do you have some information to share on how to stay safe? Well, to the pandemic, they they saw like record numbers of people trying out paddle boards for the first time or any paddle sport. You know, so this includes like anything from canoes, kayaks, paddle boards, paddle boats, and you know, rowing, which I know you really like. Um, they're all fun to do and they're, they're good for your physical and mental health. But they're also like, they, they, they come with risks. It's why there was a surge in accidents that went along with growth in paddle sport popularity. So Lily, what exactly caused the surge in accidents and fatalities? Well, lack of safety training and experience was, you know, the main reason. Hmm. So according to the Coast Guard data, 74.6% who died in paddling accidents had less than 100 hours experience in the activity. And 38.8% had less than 10 hours experience. Wow. So paddle sports related fatalities accounted for more than 26% of all boating related fatalities in 2020. And there's a lot of boats on the water. So that's, uh, that's not exactly even, you know, with, with regular boating. That's uh, making paddle sports seems a little more dangerous. But why are paddle sports growing in popularity knowing that they're a little riskier than just going out in a boat? Well, okay. According to the chair of the board of directors of the American Canoe Association, people are drawn to paddle sports because it's fun and it's accessible and it's cheap. So it's easy to get your craft to the water. There, you don't need a license, no marina fees, no fuel. And, you know, it's like it's good exercise. Boats, you need to have access to a boat and a license to drive it. You know, you forgot to mention one important thing, Lily. It's <laughs> also a great way to go fishing. Oh, yeah. No. According to a review of fatality and related accident sports most accidents happen in flat water wow when there are no waves due to people simply falling overboard or capsizing which is when the watercraft flips over untrained paddlers usually don't know how to get back in once they've fallen out aren't wearing a life jacket and aren't prepared for cold water exposure hmm. yeah you know hypothermia a lot of people think it's instant but in reality you can live for about an hour in really cold water but after 20 minutes, you don't have the dexterity or the strength to either pull yourself back into a boat or even swim to shore. So, yeah, the first 20 minutes are crucial if you're going to save yourself. Otherwise, you're just hanging on after that. And uh, that's when the uh, life jacket comes in super handy. Yeah, another problem is that many paddlers, they don't consider themselves boaters. They don't realize they're required to, by law, to obey navigation rules and carry their required safety equipment for their size and type of vessel. So things like a whistle, a bailing bucket, a throw rope, and a flashlight, you have to always be carried in a canoe or kayak. Do you have some other tips that people should follow before heading out on the water, Lily? 
experts recommend the following safety tips to help paddlers reduce risks. So number one, uh, seek safety training. Two, wear a life jacket. 85% of all paddle sports drowning victims were not wearing a life jacket. Number three, be prepared to get wet. So dress appropriately for the conditions, including the possibility of cold water exposure. So compared to other types of boating, in paddle sports, you're more likely to end up in the water. You know, paddlers always say we're all in between swims. Mm. Um, Number four, check conditions and weather forecast. So always check current weather condition and the forecast before each paddle trip. Avoid conditions that exceed your experience and skill level. Mm. Water current and local winds can make it easy to get out and difficult to get back in. Five is file a float plan. So share a simple float plan with friends and family and include your anticipated departure and return times and locations. So ask them to alert authorities if you're not back on time. Uh, Number six, always paddle sober. Alcohol has long been the leading known contributor factor in fatal boat accidents. Safe paddling requires a clear thinking and good decision making. So don't drink and paddle. Good suggestions for sure, Lily. Thanks for all this. Now let's get to our uh, visit with Jeff Garnsey at Garnsey's Feral Acres. And uh, that was fun, eh? I'd go back every week if I could. Oh, I tell you. This is an amazing man who's uh, retired from the U.S. Navy. He was a commander aboard a U.S. nuclear submarine. Uh, he is a, a fishing guide on the St. Lawrence River, which is how I met Jeff Garnsey. And then uh, last January... At the Save the River annual general meeting, Jeff was showing you his uh, Instagram posts and all the pictures of his farm animal rescues that he's been doing. And and I thought, oh my goodness, we have to come and visit as soon as it it warms up. So off we went. And what what an experience. eh? It was amazing. That, no, it was so fun. You, like, mom wanted a career change, oh. you know. <laughs> yeah, she, we almost left her there. <laughs> yeah, you almost left me there. I was very glad to stay there. Well, this is part one of a three-part series with featuring Jeff Garnsey and the Garnsey Feral Acres. Outdoor Adventures. Hey, good to see you. You too, buddy. <laughs> Thank, Thank you so much for coming down. Well, you know, after you yeah, extended that invitation had to save the river uh, AGM, you know, we, it's all we've been talking about for the last, you know, six months kind of thing. One of the difficult things about having a rescue is that you pretty much have to be okay with the fact that you're going to outlive everything on the farm, um, with very few exceptions. We did get a couple mules from a kill pen out in Colorado that may just uh outlive me because they have a they have a very long really? lifespan yeah huh? they're, it's not unusual to see one 40 45 years old wow yeah so and they were uh they were seven and nine when they came to us jeff how long have you been operating garnsey's feral acres we actually got our not-for-profit status um in 2017 okay but uh, the the actual rescuing animals goes much much further back than that, as far back as uh, at least since I retired in '09. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't anything that I planned. This entire place is nothing that I planned. It just you rescue an animal, and the next thing you know, there's another one, and something uh, something changes when you're able to to help an animal. And it's it's uh, it's almost addictive when you you know you see something that if you don't help, then who is going to? Yeah. Um, and there's examples of it 
all over. We've got some just amazing stories. That little, there's a little kitten that's in front of your uh, your youngsters over there, yeah. and um, she was found in a shoebox, and she was taped in the box what? with the body of her expired mother oh. and one sibling, um, and she was nearly expired herself, and she was just absolutely uh, tick and flea ridden. Um, and to see her be able to come back, and now she's super, super friendly. She stays close with all the other animals. Um, and, it, you know, and she's an she's, outdoor cat. And obviously. she's an outdoor cat, yep. <laughs> the majority of them are in a feral colony, so they're clipped, they're chipped, and they're fixed. Um, and what that means is you take a little piece of the tip of their ear off yeah. to identify them as a feral cat. Oh. Um, because a very, very large number of birds. Um, in the United States and all over the world, as a matter of fact, are killed by cats. It's a yeah, high yeah, percentage. Yeah, yeah. Um, so by introducing a feral colony to a piece of land, it keeps outside animals from coming onto the property and breeding and displacing them and then affecting the birds that live in that area. So your um, cat, these cats won't hunt birds? They don't hunt birds. Because, no. because they have no claws? Oh, no, no, no. You never, uh, you you never declaw. But how do, you, um, how do you keep them from hunting the birds? You make food and water easily accessible. Yeah. So their need, they still will hunt like mice if they get around, but you'll, we don't have any mice. We don't have any real small, uh, anim never any rats either, obviously. Yeah. Um, but they don't have that relationship with anything that they have to hunt it. Hopefully you came to hear the stories because every animal has definitely got a story. <laughs> well, it might be a two-part podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's only 74 of them, so it won't be too awful long. Oh, my goodness. What was your first animal rescue? Do you uh, remember? Yes, it was Phoenix the pig. Um, I went down to North Carolina, and I was there when she was born. Yeah. And... Um, she was the firstborn of a litter of 16, and she um, she was stepped on by her mom, and it paralyzed her and blinded her because it pinched wow. it pinched her um, her spinal column. Yeah. And the lady that owned the farm, it was a 600-acre organic farm. She kind of brushed her to the side. She was about six inches long, and. Uh, she said, well, they don't all make it. Yeah. And it just, it was a, it was one of those weird gut checks that you're not prepared for. And so I reached down to pick her up. She was, she was completely black with little pink boots and a pink nose. And, uh, Elizabeth was very, very clear. She, when we went in, I went into the Navy in 83 and she went to Duke for animal husbandry and veterinary science. And, animals are her, her thing, specifically pigs, um, and she said, if you pick up this pig, you're going to be responsible for everything that mother does, and that's colostrum on the gums, that's feeding every two hours and then every four hours, and she may not make it regardless because she's paralyzed and she's obviously, she can't see either. Um, well, as it worked out, uh, it was a pinch spine, and after about two weeks, her legs started to move, oh. and in about a month, her eyes started to respond and the pupil started to dilate um, and she came out of it and wow. uh, she was the first rescue. That's why we called so her how long did how long did she live here? She on lived the farm? nine years yeah. and uh, she died of cancer. Um, oh. But on the way to that, she had been to, to Cornell um, three separate times. She, uh, she had a, uh, as a result of this same injury, um, she had some, uh, some internal injuries that didn't really show themselves until she was about 350 pounds yeah um and so she had to go to cornell 
uh, for surgery, and she was in pretty. She was very close to being septic, and everybody locally said, "Nope, she's not going to make it." And so I just keep expanding the circle until I found Cornell, um, who coincidentally is the number one pig hospital in the country. You've been so, there a few times since I know. Dozens and dozens of times, <laughs> yes. So um, when we got her down there, she had a 17-pound tumor in her uterus that had just really been causing some problems. And they did the surgery, um, but everything that they biopsied around it was hot. So it was just a matter of time when the cancer would come back. Yeah. Um, and when it did, it took her quickly um, and there was nothing that we could do about it. But uh, along the way, she was just everything, every day there was a different lesson about animals with Phoenix because the way she responded to people was amazing. Wow. Um, and so these three that are, you see two and they're, the third one is over there, he'll be on his way. Um, these three were last year's bottle babies. They're 14 months old now. Three different types of, uh, of cows. Oh, okay. There is a Holstein in front of us and to his immediate left, there's a Jersey and all the way over to the left, Bailey is a Guernsey and yeah. you, can't have a, you can't have a farm without a Guernsey cow, right? <laughs> um, so they were auctioned off when they were an hour old. They were in an auction in Pennsylvania, and they weren't on the auction block. The mothers were, and they were ready to drop when they went to auction, and the people that bought the mothers didn't buy the calves. Um, and because they're male, normally they would be um, either culled or made veal. Yeah. Um, but as it happened, an animal hoarder uh, bought all three of them and she had absolutely no idea how to raise a calf so she took the three of them home um and she put a bucket of curdled milk in the front yard and said okay have a ball um and within a very few uh hours of getting to her house they had scours which uh anything that goes in the mouth comes out the opposite end very oh, quickly wow. with wow. some uh, with some real pressure behind it yeah and they started to um really show signs that they were not going to make it and uh, as a result of a couple phone calls from some uh, concerned folks about how many animals this lady had um, she was convinced that the smart thing to do would be to give them up um, so they went to a place in Rochester where they were stabilized and we just, every year we seemed to take at least one batch of bottle babies and we were, we had a spot. And so I drove to Rochester and uh, I had just gotten this new truck and uh -oh. a quarter of a tank of gas was all I'd burned through it. And I put them in the cab because it was too cold to put them anywhere else. And they started pooping in Rochester and pooped all the way back to the farm. Your and brand new truck. In a brand new truck that has no longer got that new car smell <laughs> or ever will have. Um, and we had to do a lot of uh, maintenance with them. We do uh, like a probiotic treatment for yeah. about about a month. Yeah. And in order to get them to accept uh, hydration, you have to not only hang bottles sub-Q, of um, like lactated ringers, but you also do rectal hydration to get their body moving again. Wow. Um, so there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, yeah. But once you get them on the bottle and they're on a standard feeding rotation every four and then every six hours, it's just a matter of really responding um, to what their needs are, you know, making sure that they've got all the appropriate food and nutrients. And of course, none of this would be possible without the large animal vet that we have. We've got an amazing vet. 
um, and she has, uh, if I get out of my depth band, which of course, remember, I'm a fisherman, that the Amish call me the fisherman that thinks he's a farmer, yeah. um, and, and they help me quite a bit as well. But um, if I really get out of my depth band, I give her a call, and she's here normally within the hour. And uh, and if and she, the wonderful thing about our vet is that she will look you right in the eye and say, "I have no idea," yeah. which is very comforting because when someone masks their intelligence by you know bunting without you knowing, it, it puts you in a in a in a difficult spot with the animals. Yeah. By her not knowing. She's t she tells us that we're going to find out. You know, we may found out together. I may have to call in an expert. Oh. Um, and several times we've ended up in Cornell because we were just out of our depth band or our ability to help. Um, but other times we've done things that were so off the wall and ended up saving an animal. Um, it it's really, really nice to win occasionally, when, especially when an animal's given no chance. Um, you'll meet one here in a minute that was given a thousand to one chance of just surviving the surgery. Who's, at, which at one's Cornell. that? Her name is Peppa. Oh, the Peppa the pig? Peppa the pig. How big is Peppa and now? Peppa is almost 80 pounds, Yeah. but she was two days old when we rescued her, and Aww. she was two and a half pounds. And I don't know how familiar you are with bones, but she had, there's, on a leg there's a femur, and below that there's a fib, and then a tib. The yeah. fib is very thin, and the tib is a little bit bigger. Yeah. But they're all the way down in the area called the hock region, which is the from the wrist up to the elbow. And she had multiple fractures and dislocations of the fib and tib. Wow. And she was two days old. Um, and she would have normally been culled where they would put her down. Um, and you can't make this stuff up. She had nine kids, this lady that had this pig farm. Yeah. And one of her little kids, whose name is Faith, is a 13-year-old girl that she had adopted. And when she saw this injured piglet, she picked it up and she gave it this, uh, there's a little zebra hanging on the fence over there. She gave it that zebra, which had been her uh, security animal since she'd been adopted. Oh, so wow. her mother could no longer call this, this pig. And she was way too far out of her depth band to do it herself, so she called Lollipop Farm, which is the largest SBCA in the country. Yeah. And it's in Rochester. Okay. And they agreed to take this pig, but they needed a follow-on. So it was like, we'll arrange transport, but you have to find a place for it. So they reached out to us, and we knew that she was going to have significant medical issues, which always means significant medical bills yeah um so we had to get a sponsorship initially of fifteen hundred dollars from a sponsor that would sponsor and name the pig yeah um and of course within 30 minutes of being at cornell you've blown through that 15 well beyond that yeah. but we got a sponsorship within just a few minutes so within hours of the injury she was here um and she went to cornell and they had never done this surgery on a pig, even at Cornell, even in, as an experiment. And they had never operated on an animal that small. Yeah, just and, a little piglet. Yeah, it's two and a half pounds. And, wow. you know, their bones are like rubber. And yeah. there was the x-rays were just a train wreck. And uh, the doctor came out. He was an exotic animal surgeon. And because a pig surgeon, there was no way that they could do it because it involved putting titanium rods the length of the tibia. Um, and he came out and explained, even in best case scenario, this animal's got a thousand to one chance at best wow. of surviving the wow. surgery. Wow. Um, and then they go over the cost and it's, it, we had just had an animal at Cornell. Um, 
so it was it, the cupboards were almost bare and they were like uh, well the CT scan is going to be $2,400 she's going to need at least one of those the MRI she's probably going to need three of those and those are $1,200 a piece and she's going to need probably a dozen x-rays which are another $250 a piece and oh the surgery is going to be between seven and ten thousand dollars at a minimum so you know the whole time I'm thinking so you, so there's a chance, which is why I drive Julie absolutely crazy. <laughs> there's a chance. Yes. So <laughs> she went into surgery, and apparently she didn't get the memo that she wasn't supposed to survive, yeah. and she did. Um, and the, the really neat thing is she had six different surgeries. She had seven different castings. Um, and the day that we, we brought her home, she was three weeks old, and every bill that she had acquired had been paid for by donations. Wow. And so she comes home and there's there's a little spot right here uh, to my left that doesn't have any doesn't have any grass in it, but there was mud in that spot and she had never seen outside before. So she runs over to that because she was printed on me and she put her face in the mud and she flopped down and she coated she's orange and she coated her body exactly halfway with mud and of course i put it on the feral instagram uh feral acres instagram and it took off immediately we've never had anything with more than you know five or six thousand views within a week she was coming up on five on three million views she went wow. Yeah, Peppa. 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 Yeah, the orange one. Yeah, yep. she had a million within a few hours. Wow. Um, the, the third day she hit two million, and at the end of the, the second week she had three million. And still she never goes more than about two minutes without, I mean, and she's been all over the world. But oh, I got a big nose here. Yes, you do. Who's and this that? is a jersey. Outdoor tips and tech. Six degrees on your left, 122 meters. The hardest thing when you're out on the water, paddling, whatever it is, a canoe, a kayak, a paddleboard, is just going in a straight line, right? These boats move around. A lot of it depends on how many keels are underneath the boat. So yoga paddle boards have no keels. So really, you're just standing on a flat bottom uh, mat that's rigid. So when you start paddling, it can just spin around, no problem. Whitewater canoes have no keels, so that allows you when you're going down the river to make quick turns and adjustments to avoid rocks. Uh, same with kayaks. But if you're going to go straight on the water and you want to just paddle, get a boat that has a keel. Even a single keel, a line from the front of the boat to the back of the boat, or some rudders that drop down and are fixed in position in the straight ahead position in your kayak or your paddleboard, can make a big difference on going straight. They also make uh, like sea kayaks that have a rudder at the back that you control with your feet. And so you can paddle all you want and control your direction with your feet, left, right, left, right. I use a kayak myself that has a rudder on the back, but I control it with one hand. So how do I paddle with just one hand with the other hand? I don't. I use a set of pedals that fit into my Hobie Cat kayak. So I'm pedaling my kayak, which is much quieter, I find, than paddling. And then I can control the direction of my kayak with the one hand on the lever that controls the rudder at the back of the kayak, which leaves my other hand free to hold a fishing rod. Hey, that's, that's super important. But, you know, not everyone wants to fish when they're out on the water. So having a paddle in both hands, you know, whether it's a kayak paddle, a double-bladed one, or a canoe paddle, or a, a stand-up paddleboard paddle, 
you know, you want to use your whole body. You want to use both your arms. You want to have that full experience of, you know, putting your, your core into it, twisting your, your abdomen, really rocking that boat, really making it move along. You have to pay attention to what's around you, the wind, the sound, and uh, maybe someone who's just paddling behind you or just a little bit in front of you or beside you that you can listen to and they make noise and you can just paddle towards their noise. Don't paddle straight at them though. No one likes to be rammed by another boat. So always just paddle a little bit beside them. And if you can keep your ears, you know, pinned on their location, even if they stop, by the time you figure that out, you, you'll coast up beside them. It does take some keen listening skills. And if you want to enhance that, attach some sort of bell to the back of their boat, something that makes a little bit of noise, or just ask them to sing a song while they're paddling. I often do that. I said, hey, just whistle or sing a song if you notice I'm going off track a little bit, or just call me. I, I, and I don't want to be called like, hey, Lords, you're heading for Newfoundland. That's the last thing I want to hear. Not that I don't want to go to Newfoundland. I just don't want to be out there paddling in the middle of the ocean. Been there, done that. Spending time on the water is glorious. Less so when it gets stressful though. You know, you want to be able to judge and manage risk. When is it safe to go out there for not only you, but for the people you're with? There's going to be people around you that have different levels of skill and that have different risk tolerances. So just because you don't mind a bit of wind, a little bit of chop when you're out there on the water, doesn't mean the people you're with feel the same way or vice versa you might be with some real keeners that are ready to go down and tackle some you know some powerful white water or some big waves out there on the ocean and you're not quite ready there in your skill level or your confidence level you got to articulate that you got to let those people know so that they can give you the training you need or give you the opportunity to you know work closely with them and they can follow you and monitor you to make sure you don't get into trouble or maybe you just take a pass that day and wait for the weather to calm down. It's always, you know, pretty windy between the hours of noon and 2 p.m. on any summer day. That's when the winds are the most strongest, just because of the position of the sun. And then they pick up again just as the sun is going down or around 6 o'clock. You'll have that last little gust of wind as the sun starts to dip down towards the horizon. So there are opportunities where you can paddle like the morning or late in the day, just before sunset, and even that last little bit of gust of wind, you know, it's not it's not that bad. It's that midday that's going to be the gustiest that you might want to avoid if you're not confident. Good luck and stay safe. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments. Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions on email at feedback at ami.ca or on Twitter at AMI-audio. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid, the manager of AMI-audio, Zandy Frank. <coughs> Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.